So I was always very interested in making software developers more productive. And in the beginning, we were very interested in basically building tools that make them more efficient in the end. But then eventually we noticed that there's other impediments to productivity or things that decrease the productivity of software developers a lot more than just the tools that they use. And then we found out that one of the things that's the most or the biggest impediment to developers' productivity is the external interruptions that they experience from other coworkers. Thomas Fritz is an associate professor at the University of Zurich, where he focuses on software developer productivity. His fascination with interruptions goes back a long time. In 2007, he was a teaching assistant in the computer science department at the University of British Columbia, where he worked with a postdoc named Dave Shepard. We had desks right beside each other because we were working closely. I'd be trying to get something done, something I'd consider a deeper task, like writing a paper or um, you know doing some coding. And Thomas would be trying to ask me constantly about something related to the class. So every five minutes or something, he'd be asking very good, very helpful questions about, you know, making the exam better or making the uh, assignment better. But nonetheless, about every five minutes, you know, I was getting interrupted. So um, at this time, we actually in- instituted a policy. Whenever he wanted to talk to me, he'd, he'd basically set a pen or pencil, whatever he had down in between us. You know, I could see that out of the the corner of my eye. And then when I came to a stopping point, we could actually stop and have a a good chat about it. Welcome to Rework, a podcast about the better way to work and run your business. I'm Sean Hildner. And I'm Waylon Wong. And today we're talking about interruptions. um, Do you want to hear a joke? Sure. Knock, knock. Who's there? Interrupting cow. Interrupting cow. Exactly. Today we're talking about interruptions. And we're going to bring you three stories, the first of which we'll hear about how Thomas Fritz and Dave Shepard teamed up on an invention to cut down on office interruptions. We talked to someone at Basecamp about how he manages all the requests he gets during the workday. And we'll talk to a CEO who decided to tackle one very specific form of interruption. But first, back to Thomas and Dave. Dave became a researcher at a global engineering firm called ABB, and Thomas became an assistant professor at the University of British Columbia. They'd kept in touch over the years and eventually began working together on this problem of interruptions. One of the things that we heard and we learned from people is that the biggest cost is almost if somebody comes by and interrupts them because at that point you can't really finish your task anymore. You can't really hold on and, and, and finish the things that you're currently working on before you have to, before you switch to the person. Like in an email, you can still sort of take a little bit of time, wrap up um, the things that you were doing and then answer the email. Whereas when somebody pops by, that's sort of very expensive because you have to answer immediately. And that can range from something that's very work related to something that's really just about the, the soccer match or the football match on the weekend. And obviously, Depending on how closely related it is to your task, it might or might not be um, expensive to your work. Uh, the real cost of interruptions is after that time that they've interrupted you, the recovery time. So it takes you about 23 minutes to get back in the flow of whatever you were doing after you've been interrupted. Also, there is the the fact that interruptions can cause a lot of frustration on the on the person itself. So studies have found that there is a correlation between the number of interruptions that you have or when the interruptions happen to the errors that you create or the, the defects that you create and errors that you make um, writing code or in other kind of tasks as well. As Dave and Thomas recorded these negative effects of being interrupted, they also looked at the lengths people would go to to be left alone. 
I've done the uh, earphones approach or the even close the office door approach where you just kind of physically indicate, you know, you're busy. Of course, the, the drawback here is that you have to remember to do it. Uh, and often, you know, I'd forget to put my headphones on and people would think I'm available. People have done uh, things like actually set out physical cones, like traffic size cones, uh, to indicate this is the quiet time of the day that I don't want to be interrupted. People generally forget to set the status or don't necessarily notice when they get into the state of being focused. And then once they sort of notice, it's almost like it, to set it, they have to get out of this focus. Even worse, like I'll think I'm about to be busy. I'll put up a cone to show that I'm busy. Uh, then, you know, three days later, I'll realize that I've kept up this cone that tells people I'm busy for three days in a row. And what happens very quickly is that people start ignoring your signal, whatever that signal is, because they realize it has no real bearing on what you're actually doing. All this research led to the creation of the Flowlight. It's just a USB cord powering a very small LED light. And we have software that tracks the interaction of the person on the computer, and then decides whether or not that person is available for an interruption or not, also taking account your meeting schedule and your Skype status, and then indicates it um, to people outside on the light, so it changes the color of the light, but also it changes the status of the, of the Skype. The flow light, usually housed in a ping pong ball and clipped to the name tag on a person's cubicle, changes color when it senses that you're clicking your mouse, typing, or even when things are moving on your screen, removing the need to change your status yourself. In 2015, they began testing it at Dave's engineering firm, ABB. We did a study, a really long-term study, for about a year, for over a year, really, and it involved 449 people in 12 different countries. I think it was about 14 different sites. We rolled it out in vastly different places, from a small town in Vietnam to Buenos Aires, Argentina, to Wisconsin. When we started out, we had about 30 people that were software developers, and then over time, more and more people were really interested in it, and then we changed the approach to be more general. Um, to also apply for any sort of office worker, any sort of knowledge worker that works with a computer. And in the end, it was only 35% that were software developers out of the 450. What we would do is essentially a five-week study. The first week, we roll out the software. The software does nothing except it allows the user to press a single button on their keyboard to log interruptions. So the first week is all about getting a baseline. In week two, we actually give them the physical light, the light begins working. We don't log any interruptions because they're still getting used to using the light. As soon as you had the light, people would actually come by and you would have more interruptions because people would ask, oh, that's a neat light. What is it for? And then you have just way more interruptions than you ever had before. Then in the third week of the study, we get them to log interruptions in the same way that they did before they had the light. In that way, we can compare before or after. The people in the research study continued to log interruptions like this for another couple weeks, and Dave and Thomas began to see some pretty incredible results. We saw a reduction in interruptions of about 46%, and interestingly, that wasn't the only effect. A lot of uh, the effect was in people's attitudes. People within a corporate uh, culture went from not caring at all about interruptions or not really thinking about interruptions to being very sensitive to when they were uh, going to interrupt their colleagues and trying to find the best times and talking to people more at, at coffee breaks. It's sort of trying to understand that if sometimes I might need a break, but if I take this break, I have to be aware that if I interrupt somebody, it costs them something. So, so really thinking about, is it necessary now? Dave and Thomas want to license the Flowlight so other businesses and industries can use it. And they're working on the technology to encompass more and varied states of focus. We also 
pushing it further because one of the things that we do capture at this point is all the computer interaction that somebody has. But that does not capture if somebody, for example, is very, very focused when they're right next to their computer. And quite a few people mentioned that they're particularly focused when they're sketching something on a piece of paper next to the computer. But at that point, they're not interacting with the computer. So our algorithm doesn't take that into account. We have been in the past and we are still um, right now looking at biometric sensors, so things that measure your heart rate variability um, or like your electrodermal activity and so on that, that can basically tell us something about your cognitive states to also capture aspects that are not just related to the computer work <clears throat> so that we can indicate to others whether or not you're interruptible regardless of whether or not you're compu interacting with the computer. When I think of workplace interruptions, I think of Gary Cole's boss character in the movie Office Space stopping by people's cubicles and saying, hey, what's happening? That's where something like the flow light can be an effective deterrent. But in a remote company like Basecamp, where employees aren't physically together, interruptions are virtual. I called one of my coworkers, Noah, to talk about how he handles all the requests he gets during the day. Hi, Noah. Guess what? What? You're live on the air with the Rework Podcast. <laughs> Very funny. You are. Well, I mean, you're not live, but we are recording. Um, can we interview you about office hours? Sure. Okay. Great. My name is uh, Noah Lorang. I run the data team at Basecamp. As a team, kind of, we're responsible for really everything having to do with numbers at Basecamp. Um, and so that ranges from, you know, the rework podcast to marketing of Basecamp, the product to application performance and to support. But I do say that we spend 20% of our time, like nominally, if I think about the team data charter or whatever you call it, I would say we spend 20% of our time responding to requests. The reality is we spend 40 or 50% of our time in some way doing work that is request driven. So someone has a question or problem that they want solved. Um, and so it might be, hey, we're thinking about changing this feature. Can you help us understand how it's used today? Or we did just change this feature three weeks ago. Can you help us understand what changed about it? So for that 40 to 50% of your time that is spent um, on people's requests, how do those requests usually come in? You know, the most common way uh, is, is not an official way, but it's someone sends us a ping or, or an IM or text message and says, hey, can you look at this or do you know this? Uh, that's the way that most requests actually come in. The nominal way that we, we hope requests come in is either people post a to-do on a special to-do list in our team data project, um, or they come to office hours and they ask their question there. How do you think this kind of protocol evolved where people would just ping you all day long? It's an interesting thing at Basecamp being in kind of a service team where you know, we primarily exist to help other people do their work and to make Basecamp better. We don't create things directly for customers to use. And so how can we make it easier for people to ask for help? Because that's our, our mission is to help people. And so for a long time, we had no procedures in place by which we wanted people to ask for help. And so when you have no way of doing it, the default is what's the easiest. And the easiest is, well, I can go click on Noah's name in my instant message client or in the ping menu in Basecamp and ask a question. Um, and so it's only in the last year or so that we've tried to put some structure around how people ask for things. Before you had these structures put in place, what would be 
the way you would deal with those requests? Would you answer them right away? Would it depend on what you were doing at the time? Like, how did you find yourself um, fielding all of those? Yeah, I'd say probably 80% of the time I would answer them right away, particularly if it was something that took 10 minutes to do or less. And the rest of the time I would say, hey, that's a really good question. I will get you an answer when I can. And it might be later that day. It might be the next day. It might be a week or a month. But for the most part, I tried to answer questions kind of as quickly as I could because I figured if someone's asking me this, it must be somewhat urgent. Did that usually prove to be the case? No, not at all. I think (laughs) people ask you questions when they think of them because that's when they think of them. Um, They don't actually intend to say, this is a high priority because I'm asking you this right now. It's This is when I'm thinking of it, and so I'm going to ask you it right now. Did you do this then at the cost of your own flow in terms of whatever you were working on at the time? You would just have to put it aside immediately and tackle whatever the question was? Yeah, I mean, there have been lots of days, uh, less so recently because we've tried to be better about this, but in my past where I would say, here's what I'm going to do today. And what I actually end up doing is answering eight questions for eight different people that weren't on my radar at all at the start of the day. To some extent, though, like I recognize that much of what I do is request driven. And so it's okay that the thing that I was planning on doing isn't the thing that I end up doing, as long as the things that I ended up doing were actually things that were important and relevant and worth doing. I sometimes joke that like I'm still on January of 2012's to-do list uh, because there are things that I've wanted to do since January of 2012 uh, that I haven't gotten to and that I would still like to do. Um, But I, I try to look at that not as like, Oh, I failed in time management for the last six years, but you know, I've done other things that are worth doing for the last six years too. Yeah. So then what happened a year ago that prompted you to want to make a change? Yeah. So about a year ago, uh, a couple of things happened. So one is Justin joined the team. Um, And so it became a lot more important for uh, us to think about who's going to actually answer a question for someone. And so that's what led to doing the request list was to say, well, let's get all the requests going into one place where we can prioritize them. We can assign them to each other. Office hours is a more recent thing for us. And the idea behind that was, you know, the request list worked for people who are willing to take the time to say, here's what I'm trying to do and to write up you know, a few sentences or a few paragraphs that would give us enough information to help them. With office hours, it's you come at a specific time. Don't tell us what you want in advance like you did today. Um, And we'll help you to the best of our ability that we can during that time until the point where there's nothing more we can do or it's five o'clock. So the idea was to give people kind of two ways of getting help. One in which you have to do the work up front, the other in which you don't, but you do have to come at a specific time. Yeah, so your office hours are every week, and it's do you block out the entire workday for it? Justin and I have a standing call uh, every Tuesday at 9 a.m., and so we say starting at 10 a.m. until there's nobody else or we're too exhausted, we'll do office hours. That's the commitment that we're making, is that I will give up to the entirety of my day from 10 a.m. Central on Tuesdays until I can't do anymore. You come on time ready to ask questions. You know, I have to say I am really impressed and it does make sense now that you told me that you get back to most of your quests immediately because anytime I ping you about the most inane thing having to do with Meghan Markle or Queen Elizabeth, you always get back to me right away. Well, the, the, the truth is I actually ignore everyone else's messages except for yours about the royal family. Oh my gosh, that's so nice. No, I mean, I, I do try and I probably do this too much. I try to be too responsive. Um and it is because 
um, like I do think of us as a service center and as being almost like a help desk. Whenever someone is looking for data, for the most part, it's because they want to do something better or in a different way. And I'm a fan of them doing that with data. And so I want to make it as easy as possible for people to do that within reason. Because otherwise, if if it's too hard to get help, people will just say, well, I'm not going to look at whether this thing that I did had an impact on usage or anything else. Like, I just don't, it's too hard to find out, so I don't care. And there are lots of reasons to say I'm not going to look at data relative to something that I do. I don't want the reason why someone does that to be because it was too hard to get help. And so that's why both we have these scheduled things like requests and office hours, but also why like we recognize people will come as they are. And if someone comes some other time and has a question and we can realistically answer it, we will. I really love that Noah explains that implementing office hours doesn't totally eliminate the interruptions of his day, but at least it helps a little bit. Yeah, I think humans are naturally social creatures, so it's hard not to interrupt your colleagues, whether it's making small talk about the upcoming royal wedding or wanting to discuss a work issue that's just popped up. Our next conversation is with a CEO who took a closer look at when those naturally occurring discussions shade into something more disruptive. Hello, my name is Brian Miles. I am the co-founder and CEO of Belay. Belay is a virtual services organization. We work with clients all over the United States, providing them with virtual assistants, bookkeepers, webmasters, and writers. We have 60 people on our corporate team here in Metro Atlanta that are employees and 550 contractors around the United States. At Belay, Brian's worked to build a culture of transparency, which he sees as pretty vital in a remote company where people don't see each other face-to-face. That culture involves being honest with coworkers when they need alone time. Because we create transparency, it's like, hey, do you know that you're annoying me? Like, stop, I'll get back to you in five minutes. You know, like, you're driving me up a wall, I'll address this when I can. You know, if somebody IMs me, I just ignore it if I'm, like, on a call, right? And I'll get to it when I can. But if I'm if I'm just, you know, checking email and something pops up, I'll just address it right away. And, um, you know, text messaging, we do, um, our leadership team, we text message. We have a group text that we do for, you know, heads up, this is happening. And sometimes that can get a little annoying. But also, I have the ability to shut all that off, too. We, I know as some employees that they'll batch their email, you know, and they'll do stuff like that to protect their time or their focus time. Or if they're in a meeting, they'll, uh, they'll shut off their email. They'll turn off their notifications, you know, that, but we kind of leave that up to each employee to deal with that. Part of this culture also involves eliminating what Brian views as a particularly insidious form of interruption, gossip. Can you talk about how you decided to tackle gossip as a matter of corporate policy, especially as it may be related to interruptions or what you were seeing? My wife and I, we were, um, she's co-founder as well. We were in Tucson, Arizona at a business event called Entree Leadership. And it was in 2012. And we were about two years at that point in. And we started to see that having an all virtual company, we don't have an office. So as our company started to grow, we started to see evidence of something that we guess didn't know how to label it, um, where people would be kind of talking about the company. And it wasn't negative, but it was kind of trending in a direction where it could be. And one of the speakers, his name is Dave Ramsey, talked about how gossip is really bad and you can't tolerate it in an organization. And how did he define gossip and how did you define gossip? Gossip, we kind of we kind of took it from them. I mean, gossip is really taking a problem to somebody that can do nothing about it. You know, it's it's one thing to take a story to somebody. 
That's no big deal, right? It's really when that something trends towards a problem or a challenge or an issue that you know it's not a good thing. Um, and so what we say in our organization is really simple. If you have a problem, you need to take it up, meaning you take it to your manager, you take it to HR. If you can't take it to your manager, take it to somebody else that's above you in the organization and we'll help you solve it. Um, when it kind of breaks the policy inside our business is when they take it to a peer or worse, someone that maybe reports to them. Because And here's the problem with that. You're taking a problem to somebody that can't do anything about it. And so you're, you're giving them something that, that they don't even know how to handle. And then it makes them helpless because then they don't know what to do. Did you provide some examples of something that we would consider gossip? Here's an example of something that would not meet our standard for gossip and would be fine to discuss. Yeah, we, we did. I mean, there were, there's some things like, you know, when you're collaborating, um, and you're dealing with a challenge in the business, it's one thing to say something negative about an individual when you're taking that up because it's impacting the, the team's performance, right? That's okay. Uh, but when you take that to somebody that can do nothing about it and they're just like, well, you know, gosh, I guess that person stinks now, you know, there's just nothing they can do about it. Um, another one too in a startup is, you know, you're kind of strapped for cash. You're like, you know, we actually need more money to pull this off. And so you think about that. If you have an employee that's like, gosh, we need the money to go do this one thing. And if they don't have the money and then and they don't have the ability to take the problem up, and then maybe they were going to share that with a coworker, then the other coworker starts to think, well, what are we broke? It's all these nuanced things that it just kind of pushes away and quells when you give people an opportunity or conduit to to address their issues. Instead of taking it to somebody that can do nothing about it, they basically are taking it up and saying, look, I got to share something with you that's not tattling. It's I have an issue or a problem that they otherwise maybe would have stuffed down inside of them or they wouldn't have shared. And we have, we've have a lot of transparency, I think, in our business because we've said, look, you can have problems. Just make sure you take them up. There's nothing wrong with that. So it's created some courageous conversations where people have brought things up to say, you know, gosh, this doesn't seem right, or we need to address this, or this person's not performing right. The no gossip policy at Belay has a lot of nuance to it that needs to be carefully navigated. Even the word gossip can be tricky. It has a negative connotation, especially in this context. But sometimes that term gets applied in a pejorative sense to conversations that actually need to happen. I asked Brian whether there is a use for gossip in the workplace. In light of all of these stories coming out about sexual harassment, I think it's become clear, at least to me, that people, especially women, um, can sometimes use gossip as a means of self-protection. People talk about whisper networks, which is just, you know, groups of people, usually women, again, who are um, exchanging information about maybe that creep in the office or what they can do to make sure that they are safe in a workplace that is not always safe for them. You know, that often gets labeled as gossip in a pejorative sense, but, you know, it's actually very necessary just for workplace survival. Is there, um, you know, an upside to gossip or a use for gossip? And, you know, how do you account for that in your policy? Most of our, especially like our virtual assistants are female and they work along, alongside clients. And even if there's like a, a an insinuation or subtle form of that, even on a text or whatever, we won't tolerate it. And so I got to thinking like, we need to be more clear about this. But I had a conversation with our HR team and I said, and I included our CFO and I said, um, how do we 
protect our folks in an all virtual environment. And so we just decided that we would be, um, especially in light of kind of all the stuff that's going on currently, um, is over communicate that we won't tolerate this, that you have a safe harbor. You can come to HR. We also have, um, because we have worked with a lot of contractors, we have a contractor care department and they know the people they can contact there. If there's an issue, even if it's gray, they can approach them with that. And that's, that is not gossip. That is protecting yourself. That is, you know, protecting the organization. And, you know, we've been known to fire clients before for other reasons. So if something like that ever happened, we would definitely take, you know, the appropriate action. So it was something that I guess is frankly, as a guy, I didn't think about. Um, but it is something that I wanted to address with our organization. So it starts with the leaders being receptive and being aware. You know, there are times that are rare in our company, but there are times when that person cannot go to their manager because it's maybe too personal or some weird thing. We've just tried to over communicate to our employees that they have a different way of, of, of doing that without it, you know, um, contradicting or, or impacting the gossip policy. We just, we try and say, look, you can take this to HR. They, you know, consider them Switzerland. They're your safe harbor for any type of conversation. It seems interesting the role of HR, which I think is getting more scrutiny in light of everything that's been going on, because it seems like in startup type companies or younger companies, often there is no HR department. And then once companies get really big, it seems like the issue is that the HR department is too bureaucratic or it's there to protect the interests of management and the balance of power is always tipped against the employees. And is that something you think about as you grow as well? Because your company has been growing pretty fast, right? Yeah, we've, we've grown quite fast over seven years. I guess I've always looked at and my wife too, we've, we've said this numerous times, we want to create a company that we always want to work for. And so when I thought about HR and the great experiences I've had with HR before we ever started this, and I've been an employee to organizations, it's always felt like a safe harbor. You know, whether it's just something like about maternity or a benefit question or whatever, you know, or some more serious things. It's now it's our turn as owners of an organization to make sure that we've created a safe environment. We call it a safe harbor People can kind of row inside that safe harbor and they'll know that they're protected and we're going to wrap ourselves around them and make sure that they're okay. Everybody, you know, should be in business to make a profit, to have a healthy bottom line, to do this because that does fuel future growth of an organization. But it, it shouldn't come at the, you know, at the cost of an employee that's just trying to come to you, you know, seeking out genuine help. You know, if you, if you want to create an organization that people really want to be part of, you can't let people assume the way to communicate. You kind of got to demonstrate the path forward. Rework is produced by Waylon Wong and me, Sean Hildner. Our theme music is Broken by Design by Clipart. Thanks to Heather Amos, Lewis Wallace, Paige Atkins, and Miranda Hawkins. We'll link to Thomas and Dave's Flowlight study in our show notes for this episode, which you can find at rework.fm. We will also link to a book Brian Mills of Belay wrote called Virtual Culture. I would be extremely excited if you wouldn't mind giving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Breaker, wherever you decide to get your podcasts. As always, we would love to hear from you. If you have any questions for Jason Fried or David Heinemeyer Hansen or anyone else at Basecamp, you can... Noah. Or Noah, for that matter. You can give us a call at 708-628-7850 or shoot us an email at hello at rework.fm.
Welcome to Rework, a podcast about the better way to work and run your business. I'm Sean Hildner. And I'm Waylon Wong. And today we're talking about... Um, Sean, I have a joke. Okay, tell me. This is the only joke I know. I can't wait. <laughs> okay. Knock, knock. Who's there? Interrupting cow. Interrupting Who, cow. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>